Wow, that was good, wasn't it? Amen. God bless y'all. Thank you, choir and orchestra. Normally, I preach through a book of the Bible. Today, we're going to uh, look at a, just a subject. I'm calling this a spiritual state of the union, and we'll look at that in just a moment. But first, let's do what we do every week. Let's remind each other of the gospel by quoting together John 3.16. Then let's join with Christians all over in praying the Lord's Prayer. Let's do that now. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We'll be looking in just a minute at mainly at passages in Romans 1. But I want to begin by a quote from Acts 17. And this is what it says. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Years ago, Moody Bible Institute used to put out Moody science films to illustrate truths of the gospel. And they talked about an experiment. I, I've been told that what our eyes actually see is upside down. But somehow between what comes in, enters the eye before it gets to the brain, it's turned right back, back the other way. So we appear to be seeing things right side up. So scientists decided to do an experiment. They took special glasses that would turn everything upside down when you saw them and had somebody keep them on without taking them off for two weeks. Well, it did not take long before the eye and the brain adjusted and the person was looking at things right side up. When they removed the glasses for a short while, everything was upside down again. Well, here we've got these folks saying, these who have turned the world upside down have come here. If Paul were going to answer that, and he doesn't in the book of Acts, basically what he would say is this, no, no, we're turning it right side up again. Things got turned upside down, and we're trying to turn it back to the right side. So what I want to do in this particular text in Romans 1 is show you how we've gotten things upside down in our country and then how we can turn it right side up. So if you'll look with me at Romans chapter 1, we're going to be looking at several verses, but let me give you my first truth before we go back, uh, before we start. The first truth this, what the world calls progress is actually going backward. What the world calls progress is actually going backwards. Have you noticed that the new term now, instead of liberal, it's progressive. If you've endorsed homosexuality, you're progressive. If you have endorsed abortion up till birth, you're progressive. If you've endorsed uh, socialistic things, you're progressive. So this, this is progress when we get rid of morality. This is progress when we change things from the biblical standards. No, folks, it's going backwards. And, and so with that said, let me show you the progression in Romans 1. The first step backward is to suppress the truth because you want your sin. Now read with me Romans 1, 18 and 19. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all, ungodliness, all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
Since what can be made known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. And then he points to creation as the ultimate proof that God exists. God has revealed his character in creation in the next few verses. Now let me give you the background of Romans 1 real quickly. What Paul is doing in the first three chapters is this. He's got to lay down a case of the sinfulness of everyone before you, you won't know that you need a savior till you know you're sinful. So in Romans 1, basically what he does is he shows that the Gentile world, the Roman Empire is sinful. Every Jew would go, amen. And then in chapter 2, he says the Jews are sinful, and they didn't like that. And then chapter 3, he brings in the gospel, because once you see that you're a sinner, you'll want the gospel. So what Romans 1 is, is a picture of the Roman Empire when Paul wrote this letter. Can I make this statement? Everything we're going to read pictures us today. We've gone that same slope. And we match exactly the world in which the gospel first came in. And so the first step away from God is suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. The evidence for God is so strong, you have to push it out of your mind. Uh, There's a new book out, I mentioned it a few sermons ago, by Eric Metaxas called Is Atheism Dead? It's a great read. And he basically points to the overwhelming evidence for the existence of God. Uh, He he believes the evidence for God's existence is so strong today, it's impossible to be an atheist. He spends a great deal of the first portion of the book pointing to the evidence of intelligent design. This universe could not have just happened by accident. Anthony Flew was the world's most famous academic atheist. He shocked the world in 2004 when he declared that he was now a believer in God. And he basically gave this explanation. He said, in my lifetime, The evidence for design and creation has become so strong that I had to, here's this quote, I had to follow the evidence. And I came to the conclusion that God exists. So folks, the truth is, the evidence for God's existence existence is overwhelming, but the implications of that are troubling for folk. Because if God exists, you know what that means? I'll stand before him one day. If God exists, he has the right to set moral boundaries. If God exists, he has the right to have the last say on any issue. If God exists, and he goes on later on in Romans 1 to say, people push God out of their minds so they wouldn't give thanks to him. I don't give thanks to Mother Earth. I give thanks to the creator God for all of my blessings. You see what I'm saying? And we don't want to honor God. And so we push that out of our mind. Second step backwards is found in Romans 1, 24 through 25. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what had been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. So here you've got the truth of God right before your eyes and it says you suppress it in unrighteousness. Here's the deal. If you see the evidence for God and you like your sin, you got to choose between the two. And so our culture has said, we like our sin, so we'll get rid of our God. And so when you take that first step of suppressing the truth, the next step is the culture throws itself headlong into heterosexual sin. Now, as somebody who's lived through a great deal of the last many years, I believe that the point in time when America came to this step down was probably the 1960s when we had the sexual revolution. Uh, the, the big slogans were free love. Crosby, Stills, and Nash had loved the one you're with. 
And today it's called the hookup culture. But basically what we did, we said no more moral boundaries, sleep with whoever you want, no more restraint, give yourself completely over to this. And folks, our culture, our society, our people have experienced tough consequences because of that. If I were to list to you the most well-known three sexually transmitted diseases, I'm not going to do it in the pulpit, but if I were to list those, you'd recognize those diseases. Did you know that the number of people who have those diseases has increased 20% in the last five years? The most infectious sexually transmitted disease, which almost everyone that has it now is young, is something called HPV, and that leads to cancer. So we're becoming a diseased society because God set those boundaries. He says, don't hurt yourself. Don't go into that. We don't want that. We push that out of our mind. We'll jump in. But also because of this, quote, free love, this hookup culture. In 1980, 8% of children in America were born to unwed mothers. In 2020, 40% of children are born to unwed mothers. Now let me tell you what one consequence of that. Single mothers experience a poverty rate of 34%. Married families experience a poverty rate of 6%. There are economic consequences when you say, open the door and we'll just do what we want. But one of the things he talks about in Romans 1, he says they degraded themselves. And I think one of the consequences of a sexualized culture is we've lost our sense of dignity. What else would you call twerking? And some of y'all will have to look that up (laughs) in this service. (laughs) What else would you call the clothes styles which draw attention? They're meant for one thing, that's to incite sexual desire. We've almost become a culture that is like animals that are in heat. And then the third step down, so you push the truth of God out of your mind. There's a headlong dive into heterosexual sin. And then in chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, the third step down is to embrace homosexuality and lesbianism. And here's two strong passages from the Bible that deal with these issues. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. Now, if you'll hold that up just for a second, I want you to see the first line of verse 26. For this reason, God delivered them over. It's also found, if you remember when I read to you the previous two verses, God delivered them over to heterosexual sin. Here it says God delivered them over to homosexual sin. The verses after that talks about God delivered them over to a mind that cannot even have any concept of right and wrong. No conscience at all. God delivered them. God delivered them. God delivered them. Occasionally I hear people say, folks, when is God going to judge America? For our sins. Can I tell you what I believe? I believe God is judging America because God says your punishment for wanting these sins is I'm going to let you have them. The punishment for sin is more sin. God delivered them over. Uh, Ron Dunn was a Bible teacher that came here every year for a while. He talked about when he was a child that his mama made some fresh, homemade, out of the oven chocolate chip cookies. Ooh, that's good, isn't it? And she put them in a cookie jar, and she put the top on the cookie jar, and she said, Ronnie, you can't have any till after supper, and then she walked out of the kitchen. As soon as she left, 
He opened up the jar, put his hand in the jar, and his mom walked right back in. And she said, Ronnie, he was caught. So sit down at the table, I'm going to punish you. And so he sat down at the table, and she took the cookie jar and put it in front of him. And she said, your punishment, Ronnie, is I'm going to sit here and watch you eat every cookie in the cookie jar. And it was like he was thinking, punish me. (laughs) And the first one was good, the second was good, the fourth one was good. You know, when you get to about number eight or nine... He turned to his mom and says, Mama, i got to throw up. She said, go throw up and come back. You're finishing right in front of me. And I think that's what God says. He says, I'm delivering you. I, you've wanted this. I deliver you to it. And the description, leave that up there for me, please. The description of verse 27 of homosexuality is so accurate. The homosexual lifestyle is one that's characterized by promiscuity. It says in verse 27, they're inflamed in their lusts. Let me give you some proven statistics. 28% of homosexual men say that they've had over 1,000 partners. 79% of homosexual men say that over half of their sex partners are strangers. A former director of the Centers for Disease Control said the average AIDS victim has had 60 different partners in the past 12 months. But not only is it a life characterized by promiscuity, it's a destructive lifestyle. He says that they've received in their own person the appropriate penalty for their perversions. There have been several studies, Sweden did one, other countries have done that, that said, does homosexual activity affect the lifespan of somebody that gets involved? And what they have found is that if a person is involved in a homosexual lifestyle, their lifespan will be decreased from 20 to 30 years. Here's a statistic. If a young man at age 20 begins homosexual activity, he has only a 32% chance to reach age 65 and a 50% chance of becoming HIV positive. That came from the Journal of Epidemiology. Then you've got other transmitted diseases that are just unique to homosexuality. Can I just call your attention to one that's in the news right now? Monkeypox comes through same-sex activity. If you want to know how destructive it is, think about this. Only recently, under politically correct pressure, did the FDA start allowing homosexual men to donate blood. For years, a homosexual man was not allowed to donate blood because his blood would be so contaminated. Now the the FDA says you've got to not have had sex with another man for three months prior to donating. But does that show you that something is wrong? So when you look at this downward progression, push God out of the mind, throw yourself into heterosexual sin, that becomes uh, where you need more, the law of diminishing return, I've got to go further. Then you throw yourself into homosexual sin, and then you end up at the end of Romans 1 where you're applauding everybody who does these things. Pride. Well, question on the floor then for number two. Can we turn this around? Can I remind you of the record of the early Christians in the Roman Empire? Paul is writing this letter about A.D. 58. By the time you get to 350 A.D., the Roman Empire is a different place. How did it happen? Because these men who turned the world upside down have come here also. It happened because of the gospel. By the time you get to 350 A.D., did you know gladiators were gone because of the impact of Christianity on the Roman Empire. By the time you get to 350 AD, abortion, which had been legal through potions, was no longer legal. Infanticide, uh, 
you were only required to keep one baby girl, then you could expose every other one and allow them to die. Infanticide became illegal. Folks, morality came into the Roman Empire all because Christians shared the gospel and the empire was changed. And folks, the way to see America changed is through sharing the gospel. It happens one soul at a time. We were at a low point in 1700 in our country and a group of preachers like Cotton Mather were preaching sermons that were entitled Jeremiah's. Woe is me, we've gone bad. Didn't do anything to change the culture. And then Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and others began to go across America preaching, you must be born again. He, uh, Whitfield preached it so much, somebody came to him and said, why do you always preach you must be born again? He said, because you must be born again. But what they did was they got people to become Christians one soul at a time, and that's what changed society. Now, does that mean that we should ignore good legislation? Someone recently said, the government should not legislate morality. Well, let me tell you something. That's what the government's for. When you have laws on the book against murder, that's legislating morality. When you have laws on the book against theft, that's legislating morality. When the Supreme Court this last week allowed the states to determine, we, we haven't gotten rid of abortion, but what that means, there'll be some states who say, we believe the government's job is to protect the most innocent, the most vulnerable, a babe in the womb. Now, wouldn't you agree that the government should protect the innocent and the vulnerable? That's legislating morality. But let me make this clear. Changing legislation does not change hearts. Our job is to go one soul at a time, bring them to Jesus, let the Holy Spirit enter them, put a Bible in their hands, see their minds changed. So it's got to go one soul at a time. Uh, Only a relationship with Jesus will fill the empty place in people's hearts. And I'll be honest with you folks, my heart breaks when I see people today. We have this explosion, especially among the young, of transgender where people are saying, you know, I know something's not right. Well, let me explain something. If you don't have Jesus in your heart, you feel that something's not right. But what they're being told is, well, if, if I realize now that I'm really a boy instead of a girl. And so they've come up with euphemistic sounding terms like gender affirming surgery. Can I tell you what that is? It's a mastectomy and a hysterectomy and testosterone. And what happens is somebody goes through that drastic of a cry and an action to say, I don't feel like something's right. And you know what happens afterwards? The internet is full of people expressing great regret. Because even after they went to those lengths, something was still not right. Because God created you to know Jesus and only Jesus will fill that empty place. So let me give you a couple of words on this before I leave this particular point. We've got to Christians aim at the root problem, not the fruit problem. Now that doesn't mean we neglect issues. You have never heard me in the pulpit neglect any issue. But folks, we're not going to change the world by being right on issues. We're going to change the world by bringing the gospel to people and seeing their hearts saved. Martin Lloyd-Jones was the leading heart doctor in England, and he left it to become a mission pastor in Wales. It was scandalous that the leading heart doctor would become a pastor. And so when he came to Wales, the Women's Christian Temperance Union was trying to get support for England to do what America had done, to get a prohibition uh, amendment or whatever they do in England to get rid of alcohol. 
And so they were having a rally, and they said, Dr. Jones, will you be our main speaker at the anti-drinking rally? He said, I won't do it. And he said, this, I love this. He said, I've come to Wales with one solution, the gospel. He was not going to go down side roads. He was going to keep the one solution there. Can I remind you folks that lost people act like lost people because they're lost people. Another thing I think we've got to do, not only aim at the root problem rather than the fruit problem, but aim to win the soul, not just the argument. I'm just sad we've got something called the internet and social media today. I don't read it, but Dave does, and he tells me what y'all are saying. <laughs> I'm telling you what, folks, we've got to watch our words. We've got a lot of people out there whose sole goal is to win an argument and drive someone down because they said the wrong things. I remember I was in counseling one time. Now, we men have a nature where we are logical and we can press our case like Perry Mason, you know, or like Matlock, you know, we, we can just do that. And I was having a marriage counseling, and the husband was pressing his case, and I called timeout. I said, come out with me, buddy. I got out of earshot of the wife, and I said, today we've got to, I got to ask you a question. Is your goal to win your argument or win your wife because you ain't going to do both? Decide right now if your goal is to win the argument or win your wife. Our goal, folks, is to win souls. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. The Lord's servant must not quarrel but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. And then lastly, evangelism must be followed by Bible teaching. The Great Commission in Matthew 28 is not only do you win them and baptize them, but you teach them, teach them to obey. And this is where we have fallen down in the church, folks. When we send our kids off to college, oftentimes because of the overwhelming politically correct, woke things they're hearing, we lose our kids. Now, it's not that we're not trying. Dan Yoder teaches the juniors and seniors in Sunday school. You have a junior and senior, you make sure they go to Sunday school because he's doing everything he can to prepare them for what they're going to hear in college. I love what Casey did on graduation day. He gave all of our recent graduates the apologetic study Bible, which answers the objections that the culture is throwing against us. But folks, we've got to explain the Bible, but go farther than this now. We've got to explain the Bible and explain why what the Bible teaches is the best way of life. I've got one last verse to share with you. John 10, 10, Jesus says, a thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come so that they might have life and might have it in abundance. I love that verse. What a contrast. Satan is the thief. And I want to tell you something. Satan wants you to walk away from God. Satan wants you to walk away from the good standards of his word. Why? Because he wants to rob you of your future. He wants to rob you of a future good marriage. He wants to rob you of your health. Only Jesus wants the best for you. John 10, 10 helped win me to Christ. I'd heard a lot of don't do this, don't do that at church. And then I started meeting some crazy happy Christians. And I looked at them and said, I want what they have. And Jesus came to give us a life and a life that's more abundant. Don't focus on what you give up. Focus on what you get. Now, I accepted Christ early. I wasn't Christ 15. I wasn't quite 15. Can I tell you what I gave up? I've never thrown up on myself after I got drunk. I gave that up. I've never woken up a morning wondering, is that girl pregnant? from last night. I, I missed that. I gave that up. 
Uh, I've never had a time in my life where I've lived with real regrets because I followed Jesus from the time I was late in my 14th year all the way through. But I'll tell you what I've gained. My wife and I this week will have our 45th anniversary, and we are more in love now than we ever were when we stood at that altar shaking. Uh, I have had a purpose worth living. Jesus' word is the last word in my life. It's the last word in our home. It's kept us unified because we let that be our standard that holds us together. I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit living inside of me, and the Holy Spirit has filled up that empty space that was in my heart, and I've had no fear of death since the moment I put my faith in Jesus. John 3.16, whosoever believeth in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. There was a, a great pastor named Sam Shoemaker, and he wrote a letter to his congregation when he knew that he'd never be able to return because he was close to death. And I love one line in it. He's talking about the life he's had. He said, it's been a great run. And then he said, heaven's going to be more of it. That's what you get when you get Jesus. That's what God wants for you. That's what's available this morning. So I want to ask you one soul at a time, open your heart and receive Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, please knock on the door of anyone that doesn't know you so they can open their heart and trust you. Your way is so good. I've tasted it and seen that's true. Help others follow you and experience the same blessing. Friend, just call out to him to say, Jesus, I need you. Trust in him now. In Jesus' name, amen. Where we're coming now to the last song. The faith by which we stand, the faith that we hold fast, it quenches every fiery doubt, not moved by winds of man. I hope your heart's been encouraged. The hospitality is sweet opening. If you want to talk about joining the church or you need prayer, you go there. Uh, two things. There's new envelopes on top of our offering boxes that you can use to give toward the building renovation. We begin August 21st, and we still have uh, about $200,000 more that we need to raise, but I appreciate your generosity. So if you'll think about that. This Wednesday night... Uh, Justin and I are going to do a special podcast, Is the Southern Baptist Convention Becoming Liberal? Uh, I have been a, a, a part of it all. I've been a part of the fight for the Bible in the past. I was recently the president of this state convention. I can give you some personal insight, but that'll be what we do on this Wednesday night, Is the Southern Baptist Convention Becoming Liberal? And we look forward to seeing you there. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.